This show is only for mature audiences. The cruelest prison is the one we build for ourselves out of fear and regret. Welcome, curious minds, to the Creep Cottage podcast that dances between the shadows of the darkest deeds and the lightness of laughter. Prepare yourselves for a captivating journey into the realm of mysteries, investigations, and infamous tales. In this unique experience, we explore the captivating and often chilling world of true crime, weaving together the intricate web of clues, the relentless pursuit of justice, and yes, even a touch of humor. Join us as we navigate through intriguing cases, uncovering the shocking details and enigmatic puzzles that lie at the heart of each story. While we delve into the darkest corners of human nature, we will also find solace through the lighter side of life. With our comedic lens, we aim to shed light on the absurdities, quirks, and peculiarities that often accompany these tales, bringing a touch of levity to the otherwise grim subject matter. So tighten your seatbelts, ready your sleuthing skills, and prepare for a roller coaster of emotions as we dive into the world of true crime, laced with laughter, in our one-of-a-kind podcast. Welcome creeps, freaks, and insomniacs to Creep Cottage. So yeah, welcome back, guys. It's me, Oliver. And hello, it's me, your co-host, Kent. So, we have made it finally to phase two. I'm so pumped. Me too. I, I put off my research to the very last second, which was kind of dumb, but it was very interesting learning more about these uh, cases that I only know like a minimal amount of. Yeah. I've definitely heard plenty of stories about true crime, but... You're right, like, researching and delving into it, it's different, and it's a very different, unsettling kind of feeling. It is. Preparing for this episode was kind of hard, to be honest. There was multiple breaks I had to take while writing my stories out. Sounds intense. Yes. (laughs) If you guys are new here, I'm Oliver. I'm Kit. And this show is Creep Cottage, and we have reached our second phase, which is all about true crime. So... What's going to happen is that Kit found some stories, I found some stories, but I don't know what she has, and she doesn't know what I have. So our goal is to scare the shit out of each other, basically, by the end of this. (laughs) That's all there is to it. It's not a complicated show. Just, uh, can I scare my sister? Can I scare my brother? And we'll see. (laughs) So last phase, we were talking about space and time and horror stories along along that genre. What's going to be different this time, though, is that our episodes are no longer themed, so we just have a bunch of random true crime stories, and we're going to hope uh, that uh, they're scary enough. And we're going to pick whichever one is our favorite as the title of the episode. Uh, And these are all going to be true crime stories, obviously, from the title. No, these are going to be fake crime stories. I made up a crime. Listen to this. Joke's on you guys. Every single night before bed... We brainstorm and we write really bad stories and claim them as true. (laughs) And then you can fact check it and somehow find the resources we used. We just say, hey guys, this is a really niche crime I doubt you've ever heard of. (laughs) (laughs) Next, I want to talk about some announcements. Basically, our merch. So, merchandise is up on the website. If you guys want to check it out, go follow us on Instagram at Creep Cottage. The link is in the bio. Our new merch has some alien merchandise, some insomniac merchandise, and yeah, we got crewnecks, hoodies, mugs, stickers, all of the good shit. All them good shits. And I think that's going to be it for our announcements today. Nothing else really new. Uh, if you guys are listening to this podcast on our website, you guys can, ch- can check us out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Amazon Music. 
Before this episode begins, we would like to say that our hearts go out to the families of the victims in our stories. We do not wish to focus on the suffering and pain endured, but on the joy of catching these murderers and worse. We wish to study the methodologies and forensics behind the crimes themselves, bringing the truth into the light. Sounds about right. <laughs> uh, okay. As promised, we're going to give you our trigger warnings now and then before each story. So if you guys hear something that is going to be a little sensitive, then feel free to just skip around. But for my first story, I'm going to be talking about H.H. Holmes, which involves some very brutal and graphic murders. For my second story, it's called Dad, Can You Check For Victims Under My Bed? Uh, hello, what? And this is just an especially upsetting crime. Uh, it is a murder and obviously going to be graphic, so beware for that. And then for my third story, the elevator scare. Ooh. And this is uh, another... It's another murder, but there's nothing graphic about it. If you guys are squeamish or sensitive to any of the graphic stuff, then I would suggest to skip my first two stories, but the last one you should be okay for. Any trigger warnings you want to talk about for your for your stories? Indeed. So the first one doesn't really have a trigger warning. Um, it's kind of more of just an upsetting case as well. Like, there really was no reason behind it. Well, there's no reason behind any killing. Well, there's reasons. Good just, reason, at yeah. least. If that makes sense. Sometimes. No excuse for killing. I don't know about that. Some killings. I mean, if you believe in the death penalty, then you already believe that there's some excuses for killing. Yes. Also... Self-defense. Self-defense is a, also a really good reason. Um, but, like, this is something that happened in our town. I don't know if you heard about this. But I have a friend of mine whose neighbor across the street from him was murdered. What the hell? What? When? Uh, sometime last year, I believe. While we were here? Yeah. For real. What happened was that the family across the street from him, the father was very abusive to his wife and two children, and the mother's nephew came to the house, and he's, I think he was 18, he came to the house with a gun and killed the dad so that he could protect his family. So, I mean, I would probably never be that guy, but I'm also not mad at him for doing that. Yeah. Anyway, so, your second story. Yes, the second story involves... Uh, it's very brutal, but not very... It's not as graphic as the third story, but this one also includes rape. Again, doesn't go into detail, but just the mention of it. And my third story, it's, like I mentioned, very graphic, and it also mentions rape. That's that's really it. Okay. We, we like to joke around a lot on this podcast. It's part of what we are um it's hard to be in those moments of fright without being the funny guy i've always been like that and i've yeah. always just been someone who jokes around but we do want to let you guys know like we know that these are sensitive topics and we want to give you guys as much headspace as you can if you guys cannot handle an episode like this then as i mentioned in the previous phase i would suggest waiting till the next phase comes out yeah that also, if you're very squeamish, I would say, depending on the episode, skip the episode, or if you're too scared to check it out, just wait till the next phase. So yeah, thank you guys for being patient and awesome supporters. We love you guys. So if you guys are ready, we are going to delve deep into our stories. All right, let's do this. Okay. 
Who's going first? Should we flip a coin? Well, I actually want to do my story last. So you want me to go first? I want you to go first. Okay. Okay. So, my first story is H.H. H. Holmes, America's first serial killer. Ooh. Known to the public as Herman Mudgett, born in May of 1861, he soon became widely recognized as H.H. H. Holmes, or America's first serial killer. He was not just a typical murderer, though, due to his mansion of horrors and unusual methodology. As a child, he was exceptionally smart and showed a keen interest in medicine. It was said that he would build traps for animals that he would later perform surgery on. Unconfirmed, yet still unsettling, evidence pointed to him killing a childhood playmate. After graduating high school at 16, he would attend the University of Michigan as a standard average medical student. However, while at college, he would steal cadavers to burn or mutilate them, and then stage them somewhere to appear as, an, as if an accident. Quote, Holmes would take out insurance policies on these people before planting the bodies, and would collect money once the bodies were discovered. Unquote. In 1885, he traveled to Chicago and became a pharmacist. He changed his name to Dr. Henry H. Holmes and eventually left his wife to take over as the owner of the drugstore once the previous owner had passed. His widowed wife was never seen again, which he blamed on her moving to California, but was never fully verified. He built a three-story hotel across the street that was eventually titled the neighbor by the neighborhood, The Castle, now known as The Murder Castle. Throughout its construction, Holmes would hire and fire multiple construction crews so that nobody had a full picture of what he was building there. Holmes was known to be a charmer and easy to talk to. After his hotel was completed, he placed ads in the newspapers for young women to work in the hotel and that he was a wealthy man looking for a wife as well. The job supposedly provided a live-in situation and meals. Quote, All of Holmes' employees, hotel guests, fiancés, and wives were required to have lifetime insurance policies. Holmes paid the premiums as long as they listed him as the beneficiary. Most of his fiancés and wives would suddenly disappear, as did many of his employees and guests. People in the neighborhood eventually reported that they saw many women enter the castle, but would never see them exit." Unquote. Ew. In 1893, Chicago hosted the World Fair, celebrating the 400th anniversary of Columbus's discovery of America. I don't know if you can tell, but that discovery was in quotation marks for me. <laughs> <laughs> the fair went from May to October of that year. Fucking long-ass fair. How long? From May to October of the year. Oh, damn. Sorry, I blanked for a second. That's fucking five months. Yeah. Six months, right? From all of May to all of October, that's six months. Six. Jesus Christ. So, yeah. The fair went on from May to October of that year, and Holmes hashed a scheme. He knew many of the tourists would be looking for a place to stay, and he could easily seduce women back to his hotel. Witnesses confirm many out-of-town guests enter the building but never leave it. Going back to the murder castle, I think it's time we learn how it got its famed nickname. The first floor of the hotel had many stores, and the second and third floors acted as his office and held over 100 rooms. The sheer size is daunting enough but Holmes rigged his rooms with unthinkable methods to murder the guests. He soundproofed many of the rooms and had gas lines that he could leak in, causing the guests to asphyxiate. Oh, God. Throughout the hotel, he had planted trap doors, stairs leading to dead ends, peepholes, and chutes leading to his underground laboratory. The underground lab was designed for Holmes to dissect and murder with various methods. He had a stretching rack, a medical table used to mutilate and surgically dissect his victims, 
and a crematorium to dispose of evidence. The chutes were used to dump bodies straight to his lab of terror, where he would sometimes strip the flesh from the bodies and sell the skeletons to universities. Otherwise, he would burn the bodies in the furnace or in a vat of acid he also had on hand. After the World Fair had passed, the economy tanked and Holmes partnered with Benjamin Pitizel. He abandoned his hotel and the two went across the country making insurance scams while Holmes committed random murders along the way. Eventually, he was carted off to jail for a selling horses scam and he conspired with his new cellmate, Marion Hedgepeth, to fake his death and continue the insurance scams. This plan soon failed when the insurance companies denied him for a suspicion of his character. Frustrated, Holmes reconnected with Pitizel and convinced him to fake his death and follow the same plans. This time, though, he killed Pitizel and assumed the money for himself. And in 1894, the past had cut up with him. Marion called the authorities on him after the first Wendell had failed and he was apprehended in Boston. An outstanding warrant came up from his horse scam in Texas. When they caught up with him, he looked ready to flee the country, and so they searched his hotel back in Chicago. They found his rigged rooms and his lab where there were countless bodies laying around so charred, decomposed, or mutilated that it was impossible to ID any of the corpses or even how many of them there were. Oh, this is back at the, the place that at he the had built? Castle. Okay. For some reason, I thought he was at a regular hotel oh. hiding a buttload of bodies. Yeah, no, his hotel. Okay. His homemade hotel, his DIY hotel. No. The investigation led them to Indianapolis and even Toronto, where they found the dead Pitizel children that had gone missing since the insurance fraud spree. He was convicted and he confessed to 28 murders. However, it is believed that he killed well over 200 people. In 1896, Holmes was found guilty and hung for his crimes. His mansion still stood but was remodeled as an attraction named Holmes's Horror Castle, but burned to the ground shortly before it ever opened. I will say, good. Who know. the hell would want to go into a place like that, where so many people were killed for no reason? I don't know. For history reasons, I guess. Because people I like guess. to visit, like, and this is kind of fucked up to say, but people do enjoy, like, going to, like, Holocaust museums or like slavery plantations that are remodeled and stuff. Yeah. It's really fucked up. I don't really like to do that stuff. The only time I've ever enjoyed a, a visit like that was the Holocaust Museum in New York City, but that was because it was focusing on the uh, the victims. It was yeah. focusing on what life was like for them and how awful um how awful those camps were. But for something like this, this is, it's, it's like you saying, like, it's pretty sick because you're not going to visit his mansion to be like, wow, look at all the guests that suffered here. You go there to be like, oh, wow, H.H. Holmes had this place and he killed hundreds of people here. Exactly. Yeah, it's for the wrong reasons. That's where I get conflicted in, like, um, in buying a house where someone was killed. Where's the confliction? I don't know. It just... It feels weird. Not in, like, the horror... Like, the typical horror sense, but, like... like haunted? Yeah, not in, like, the typical haunted sense, but, like, being, uh-huh. like... Someone was literally murdered here in my living room, and they used to own this place. Yeah, I don't think I could ever buy any property where someone was murdered. Not, like... 
I am superstitious, so the haunting thing would loom over me, but on top of that, I want somewhere that's peaceful and safe, and you can't really totally feel like that when something as tragic as that has happened in the past. Yeah. Same thing was uh, with buying a place uh, where a murderer lived. Um, there is a very popular theory circulating the drain right now. Oh, tell me more. Um, so the theory goes that people believe H.H. Holmes is actually Jack the Ripper. So the theory goes that Jack the Ripper ended his killings right around the same time that H.H. Holmes began his murder spree. So some people believe that uh, Jack the Ripper moved countries, he went by boat to America, and continued his murders here. I would argue, though, that I think that this theory is a little crazy. And I'll, I'll say it for a couple reasons. First off, serial killers rarely deviate from their regular M.O. Yeah. That's... So, H.H. Holmes really enjoyed killing blonde women, specifically. Hmm. But, you know, he just liked killing. So, eventually, he'd overlap and do other stuff. I mean, he killed over 200 people. It can't all have been blondes. Yeah. But Jack the Ripper is a very specific M.O. who never deviated once. He went after specifically prostitutes and he carved them up and stole organs for sexual reproduction. Like the sexual reproductive organs? Or? Yes, they would. He would. I'm pretty sure he would steal. I mean, I haven't done my research on Jack the Ripper in a while, but I'm I'm pretty sure he would like rip ovaries out and oh. things like that. Um, oh, that's disgusting. Yeah, Jack the Ripper is fucked up. But that's why I really don't think it could be the same person. Yeah. Also, it could just be like a really dumb coincidence. It probably is just that. Also, like, people have history of Mudget growing up into H.H. Holmes. Yeah. So, again, I'm sorry, but I gotta side with the paperwork over the, the <laughs> theories. Yeah. But that is, uh, that's what I got on good old Henry Holmes. Or Henry <gasps> Holmes. <laughs> What's his middle name? Budget? No, his last name is Mudget. I don't know what the middle H stands for. Oh. I can look it up, though. Wait, so it's H.H. Holmes. H.H. Holmes. So he's... <gasps> so he's Henry something Holmes Mudget? Well, he changed his name when he moved oh, to Chicago. I see. Okay, that makes better. That makes more sense than having you know two last names. <laughs> How's uh, your search going over there? Okay, the middle H stands for Howard, so he's Henry Howard Holmes. No wonder he became a serial killer. Well, he changed his <laughs> name to that. He's the idiot here. However, I'd be kind of mad if my name was Mudget also. Yeah, but Henry. <laughs> Howard. Ew. I don't think that's awful. Henry Howard? That's fine. It's... What's wrong with Henry Howard? It's weird to say. That's why it's... He's Henry H. Holmes, not Henry Howard Holmes. He is technically Henry Howard Holmes, though. Yeah. But he goes by Henry. Or Holmes. Or H.H. Holmes. Sure. Which does he go by? I assumed when he was alive, he went by Henry or he went by Dr. Holmes. What a Dr. Holmes? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. I, no. I just have this weird feeling like, what if he was such a shitty pharmacist? <laughs> just gave the wrong drugs to the wrong people. 
Or he just talks too much because he's so fucking lonely. Here's your propanol, Mrs. Xanther. Did you catch the uh, the horse and buggy race the other day in the street? That was pretty wild. You know, what is this world coming to? You know, I heard the Chicago Fair is coming up pretty soon. I was thinking about hosting some of the people over at my place. Yeah, that'd be kind of fun. I don't know. Maybe I should, maybe I shouldn't. But, I mean, the place is almost done building, so maybe I should just go for it. But there's also the fact, hey, did you get all your meds? That's six, right? Okay, cool. Just I, making sure. I take lorazepam. <laughs> I gave her the fucking wrong meds. Ooh, okay. That was a... Pretty... America's first serial killer. Right. That was him. Yeah, that... Ugh. I'm curious as to how big, big this place was. You know? How big, big? How big, big? <laughs> uh, how I'm, big, big? I'm, I'm pretty sure there are pictures of it. Yeah. Um, that either... Hold on. Let me retract that. Let me just look it up. <laughs> Don't quote me on that, but... Uh... Okay. There is a picture of it, of the mansion hotel. It looks like this. Oh, damn. That's like, what, three stories? It Yeah, it's three stories. Over 100 rooms in the top two floors. Damn. Um, I'm trying to see if there's a more modern... Okay, yeah. So here's what it looked like on the inside. There's actually a pretty... So this is an, uh, a drawing that someone made that kind of peers into the building. Oh, wow. And gives you a peek of what everything looked like. Um, how it worked with the stairs and everything. Yeah, the laboratory at the bottom, that's... Yeah, disliked. But yeah, uh, place was fucking whack. Mm-hmm. Sounds like it. Holmes! <laughs> You're under arrest. <laughs> Put your hands behind your back. <gasps> They just, they pronounce his name as a laugh. <laughs> You're under arrest. <laughs> Put your hands up. <laughs> Put your hands up. <laughs> On the ground. <laughs> Do you have any idea what you've done? Ha ha ha. Do you? Any last words? You, you, you. <laughs> it's a different laugh every time. Uh-huh. Do you want a final meal? He, he, he. <laughs> no, thanks. All right. See you later. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> <laughs> you sure? You, you, you. Yeah. Hey, look, it's yuck, yuck, yuck. <laughs> you vile piece of shit. You, uh. You want to spit on Hugh, Hugh, Hugh? Everyone's doing it. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> Getting the loogie ready. <laughs> Do you think he ever worked at the Chicago Fair, too? Maybe blew up some balloons? <laughs> Dude, that'd take forever to blow up a balloon. <laughs> Takes a break. <laughs> Everything he does is his name. That last part wasn't intentional, but sure. <laughs> when he's doing CPR. Stops. Stops after three. What 
do you keep working on it? He's like, hold on, give it a second. It's got to have the cool effect. <laughs> okay, I think we've heard enough about fucking Mudget. <sighs> yeah, okay, so this wasn't intentional, but all of the cases I picked are uh, take place somewhere in Asia. Okay, 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 okay. This is the Yuka Takaoka incident. So this story... How do I say this? I don't know how to say this. So people believe that this girl, Yuka, was a real-life yandere. So I've got two definitions for you here. They're very similar. But... So yandere is a portmanteau of two Japanese words. The first is yanderu, which means to be sick. And the second is deredere, used for love-struck. A yandere is often sweet, caring, and innocent before switching into someone who displays an extreme, often violent or psychotic level of devotion to a love interest. So is this like a psych- like a psychological uh, term then? In... Uh, kind of. This is more of like a, a weeaboo otaku term. A weeaboo, weeb, someone that's obsessed with anime. They're either called a weeb, weeaboo, or otaku. The second one is, um, okay, this is a quote from an article. People in Japan and the West likened Takaoka's behavior to that of a yandere, an anime character trope where a person's obsession with someone is taken to the extreme, often to the point where they would commit murder or deal extreme harm out of love. So this girl is a real-life version of that. Okay, I see. Yeah. So someone who's so devoted to someone and so lovesick that they do something violent. Yeah, but like extremely overbearing. Like way overboard. Like, have you heard the the phrase, if I can't have you, no one can? Yeah, for sure. Like that. Okay. So they would rather kill the person they're obsessed with than let them be with someone else. This incident happened in 2019. It's it's a fresher crime, yeah. Okay. Straight from the oven of 2019. <laughs> Fresh out of the oven? Blood. <laughs> Yuka Takaoka, born January 28th, 1998, is a former Japanese bar hostess who gained massive popularity after committing attempted murder out of love. She was 21 at the time. On May 23rd, she was arrested for allegedly using a kitchen knife to stab her boyfriend, 20, who was a bar host inside their fifth floor residence in the Shinjuku ward. They began to live together on May 20th. Three days later, he came home late, despite the fact that she was waiting for him. An investigator tells Shukhan Jose that Takaoka found that the victim had quote-unquote become cold toward her just before the incident. Quote, On that day, he returned home late, even though she was waiting. Quote, the investigator says, As well, she found a photograph of him with another woman on a mobile telephone he left behind. When he did finally arrive, she did not mention the photograph. Instead, after he fell asleep, she stabbed him with a knife. Shocked, he awoke and fled to the first floor lobby. Uh, she stabbed him twice in the abdomen with a kitchen knife. Takaoka was quoted saying, Since I loved him so much, I just couldn't help it. 
After killing him, I too wanted to die. I did not want to go anywhere. So I sat down at the outside staircase, she reportedly said. I did not call emergency services because I intended to die after watching him die from the stabbing. What the fuck? Yeah. People, especially weeaboos and otakus, supported her heinous actions. A GoFundMe fundraiser to bail Takaoka out of jail raised over 3,800 US dollars in two days. The fuck? The creator of the fundraising took down the donation after it was mass reported. On December 3rd, 2019, Takaoka was found guilty of attempted murder. Luna. Wait, he survived. He survived. Luna, the, the, the victim, who had recovered at that time, accepted Takaoka's apology of five million yen, which is approximately forty-five thousand U.S. dollars. Damn. He claimed to hold no grudge against her. He also apologized to Takaoka for cheating on her and asked the judge for lighter punishment for Takaoka. In the end, Takaoka was sentenced to prison for three years and six months, and she will be released sometime in 2023 or 2024. What the fuck? This year, bitch! Yeah. That's ridiculous, bro. She stabbed you like, no, nah, no, nah, it's, it's okay. Uh, I kind of made her crazy, you know? I got five million yen out of this bitch. <laughs> He's like, nah, it's all cool. I fucking got her money. <laughs> I knew she was crazy. I knew she'd stab me. <laughs> I wanted that money, bitch. Oh, yeah, I provoked her. For my. Uh, yeah, for money. <laughs> you think I left that cell phone out on accident? Pfft, no. It was on purpose. It's like, what kind of idiot has a phone in 2019 without a passcode? Me. Because I wanted to get caught, stabbed, and then I could sue her. <laughs> sue her? Steal her five million yen and run away. Well played. <laughs> you done did good. <laughs> you done did good, son. Man, that's so dumb, though. This yeah. year, next year, she's be she's just gonna go fall in love with a librarian who's too good for her, and she's gonna be like, "Hey, I saw you shush that girl back there." It's like, well, yeah. Well, I mean, that's my job. Ow. Gonna cut your dick off. He's like, if you stab me again, I'm gonna ask for 60 million. <laughs> 60 million. You heard me, bitch. Stab me again. I dare you. <laughs> She's just like, I don't have it. I don't it. have 60 million. He's like, well, sucks to suck. And then he makes her stab him again. Hey, what'd I just say? <laughs> you you made me. Mm, that's not what the cameras are gonna say. Because <laughs> I blacked him out before. You <laughs> <laughs> to Sharpie. <laughs> spray she just spray keeps paint. finding boyfriends that specifically want her to hurt them so that they can make money <laughs> made her uh, made her stab him a third time oh 70 million <laughs> okay for my second story dad can you check for victims under my bed this by the title alone sounds scary as fuck it's it's definitely sad Again, trigger warning for this story. This is some graphic murder, and uh, there are some details about the cleanup that are also a little graphic, so just be weary. Mary Collins was a beautiful 20-year-old woman who died too young and for no practical reason. 
She was said by many of her associates and loved ones to be innocent, kind, generous, vulnerable, and sweet. Mary lived in Charlotte, North Carolina with her grandmother. She had a genetic disorder called 22Q deletion or DeGeorge syndrome that prevented her from functioning fully, with many reporting that she acted much more like a 14-year-old rather than 20. She needed help with simpler tasks such as counting change or walking around her own neighborhood. This sadly also made her very susceptible and easy manipulated, said her grandmother. This brutal and senseless killing was told by police as one of the most shocking crimes they had ever witnessed in Charlotte. Mary's ex-boyfriend, Lavi Pham, had invited her to his place at the Noda apartments with his new girlfriend, Kelly Lavery. They bought her an Uber because she couldn't drive and she met them at their home. An unexpected guest was present when she arrived named Jimmy Salerno. The three had lured her inside where they brutally tortured her and killed her. They forced her into a bathtub where they beat her and proceeded to stab her over 133 times. Oh, God. They watched her bleed out slowly, and Jimmy then contacted a recent associate through Tinder named America Deal. He asked her to come and help clean up the mess, to which she agreed. The suspected motive was Kelly Lavery and Lavi Pham were upset with Mary after her refusal for a threesome. The murder was planned through text messages between the couple. Kelly later being reported as the ringleader in the murder and cleanup. The four culprits wrapped her in saran wrap and duct tape and proceeded to shove her inside of their mattress. Four? I thought there were three. Jimmy, Lavi, Kelly, and then the Tinder girl. She didn't, oh. she didn't kill Mary, but she did help cover up the body. Okay, so the the other two girls were upset that... No. Lavi, her ex-boyfriend, and oh. the girlfriend, Kelly, uh-huh. asked Mary for a threesome to which she refused. Okay. And, and so Kelly convinced her boyfriend to kill Mary next time she came over. So who is the third bitch? Jimmy. Who's Jimmy? Is a friend of theirs. Okay. And then Jimmy, through Tinder, like some fucking weirdo, asked one of his recent matches, hey, man, you want to help me clean up a corpse? To which this girl, America's like, yeah, why not? What the hell? Isn't that fucking crazy? It's disgusting. It's vile. But, like, if someone texted me, hey, I know we just matched, like, two days ago, but could you help me clean up a corpse I helped murder? There's no way in hell I'd say yes. I'd be like, oh yeah, for sure. Let me just go get the cops real quick. I'd probably say yeah. Yeah, sure. Right, bye. 911, hello? hello? 911? <laughs> yeah, uh, what the hell? What? So, Ugh. they wrapped her up in saran wrap and duct tape and proceeded to shove her inside of their mattress. They filled it also with Cascade dish detergent and pumpkin spice shower gel to mask the smell of her rotting corpse. Oh, Mary lived with her grandmother at this time, who always kept a close eye on her to ensure her safety. When Mary didn't show up when expected, her grandmother pinged her cell phone, leading back to the Noda apartments. Quickly, she filed a missing persons report with local authorities. Before her murder, though, the killers bought her sushi and recorded themselves eating and posting it to social media to give the appearance that she was fine. Um, I I don't have it written here, but the police suspected that that was the last thing they did together. They fed her sushi and then killed her. Yeah. The police didn't take the missing person's report very seriously, saying that she is 20 and can make her own decisions. Police did eventually search the apartment and swept through with no evidence of foul play. 
Later, Jimmy confessed to his friend about the incident in a boastful manner, to which the witness went to the police. The police searched again, and the witness walked them straight to the master bedroom, where they lifted the mattress and somehow still missed the corpse inside of it. How? Two days after that search, the witness, along with a second, went to CMPD's headquarters and begged for another search. CM what? CMPD. Charlotte whatever. Oh, okay. Sorry, I'm not filling in blanks today. No, you're good. (laughs) With a warrant, the police went back one more time and shocked the community of the Noda apartments. The couple was arrested at their home. Jimmy was arrested at his university. And America fled to Colorado, but was later caught on June 2nd, 2020. The initial three were charged with kidnapping, murder, and concealing a death. America was only charged with accessory after the fact and concealing a death. Mary's aunt was torn to pieces saying this, quote, I think that they are evil. I think that they are what evil looks like. They tortured her. They stabbed her over 100 times. And then they hid her in their mattress. To know that this happened to Mary, who I just know was so excited to hang out with some friends. And I just can't imagine when they started to turn on her, the fear and confusion she must have been feeling. And then just to think what she went through, it's so horrible. So horrible. The hardest thing is thinking about the torturing Mary went through and that she's gone and we don't get her back. And I can't take any of that pain away from her that she experienced, unquote. Kelly Lavery confessed and was sentenced to 32 years to life. Lavi Pham pled not guilty and is still waiting to be sentenced. Jimmy Salerno and America Deal were both released on bond. So that is the story of Mary Collins. This was the story that really took it out of me, the one that I needed to take lots of breaks for. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I can see why. I, you can see me. The viewers can't. I teared up a bit at what the ants said. It is. It's really upsetting. Um, no doubt. This is not supposed to be like sad fest podcast. Right. But I do want to say that this was the entire reason that when we started this episode, I wanted to acknowledge that our hearts go out to the families of the victim and that this is not about the murders. This is about justice happening at the end. Um, some of these will be cold cases. And those stories are, as we said before, about the method, the methodology and the way that the killer thinks, the way that the police think, the way that the forensic works out. That's the kind of stuff that we're interested in learning. But this is in no way to glorify the killers. Because yeah. they are absolutely god-awful people. And they don't deserve a chance to represent themselves after what they did. Oh, God, no. If I ever glorify a killer, take me out back and shoot me or something. Yes, I I agree. Um, I feel like that's a big problem in in today's society. Yeah. Is that they glorify these murderers and stuff on the news. Um, But with this story about Mary Collins, it honestly broke my heart in a way that hasn't happened in a while. So... Yeah. I want you guys as our viewers to know that we want this to be a very entertaining podcast for you. You know, we we want to be providing stuff that you guys care about and something that is intriguing. And this is an especially upsetting crime. But we also want you to know 
we try to do this with as much sympathy and love as we can. So I hope uh, I hope that wasn't too difficult for some of you. Um, But without further ado, let's go on to your second story. All right. So trigger warning for this one. There is a mention of rape to the victim and some brutality. So this is the Hello Kitty murder case. I know it sounds the, the name sounds. I know what it is. Oh, you do? Someone told me about this story right before we started this phase because they were like, maybe you should look into this. Yeah. So I know some of the details, but not everything. So okay. please continue. Uh, forgive me for any mispronunciations. They're Chinese. <laughs> I, I literally have in parentheses how you say it, but I know I'm going to mess them up anyways. <laughs> so without further ado. The Hello Kitty murder case took place in Hong Kong in the spring of 1999 when a nightclub hostess was abducted in Lai Yu Estate where the victim was tortured and raped in an apartment in Sim Sha Tsui after stealing a wallet owned by one of her frequent customers. Fan Min Yi was held captive by three men and one girl before dying between April 14th and April 15th, 1999. Her body was decapitated and her skull was placed inside a Hello Kitty plush. Fan Min Yi was born in 1976 and abandoned. She was raised in an all-girls orphanage. At 15, she was told to leave the orphanage because they had an age restriction. Becoming homeless and addicted to drugs, Fawn was forced into street prostitution until the age of 21, when she began working at a brothel named Romance Villa, located in Sham Shui Po. She married one of her clients, a fellow drug addict named Wu Jiang. No. <laughs> named Wu Jiwan? Jiwon, sure, we're going with that. <laughs> Wu Jiwon, in 1996. She gave birth to their son two years later in 1998, not long before her murder. Chen Wenle, a 33-year-old Wo Xingwo triad member who had problematic behavior since middle school and previous charges for drug trafficking, was one of Fan's regular clients at the brothel. In early 1999, Fan stole Chan's wallet, which contained about contained about 4,000 HK, which is roughly um, 500 US dollars. On March 17, 1999, Fan was abducted by three men and one girl at her flat in the Fu Yui section of Lai Yu Estate. His grooming victim, Lao Ming Fong. Loeng Wai Leon and Loeng Sing Zhou, who was the boyfriend of Lao. The group took Fan to an apartment at number 31 Granville Road, Simi Shai Tsui, where they imprisoned her for a month. Initially, Chan had intended to pimp Fan to other men. During her imprisonment, she was tortured and raped. According to one source, she was beaten with metal bars, sometimes while being strung up and used as a punching bag. On one occasion, Fawn was kicked in the head around 50 times. 
Spices were rubbed into Fawn's wounds. Her legs and feet were burned with candle wax and hot plastic so that she was unable to walk. She was forced to consume human feces and urine, and she was forced to smile and say she enjoyed the beatings. If she refused, they subjected her to even harsher torture. This treatment eventually led to traumatic shock and ultimately death. Upon returning Fawn's body, her captors dismembered and boiled the remains. Her skull was sewn inside of a Hello Kitty doll while the rest of her body was discarded. Only her skull, one tooth, and some internal organs were recovered in a plastic bag. After Lao led the Yao Ma Te police to the scene on May 24th, after finding out the murder made it to the media via a local newspaper, Loeng Wai Leon fled to mainland China before getting caught by the police on February 14th, the year 2000, after irregularities were found in his passport. Justice Peter Nguyen, who sentenced the trio to life in prison with the possibility of parole, stated, Never in Hong Kong in recent years has a court heard of such cruelty, depravity, callousness, brutality, violence, and viciousness. They were described as remorseless. A necklace that belonged to Fawn was handed over to Fawn's son after it was discovered in the refrigerator during the investigation. Loen Sing uh, Zhou, who managed to reduce his sentence from life to 18 years on appeal, was released in April 2014. 18 years later, Luang was arrested and sentenced to jail once again for 12 months on August 2022 for sexually assaulting a 10-year-old girl. Yeah, that makes me sick, too. Yeah, that was... <clears throat> that was the... So how did... Kid. What did you say? What? How did they catch them? Uh... One of them confessed, right? Um, I don't really think they mentioned it. From what I heard from my friend, uh, one of the, I think it was the woman that you mentioned, mm-hmm. she couldn't handle knowing that they were doing this to her. Uh, and after the murder, she was haunted by the Hello Kitty doll and would have nightmares about it every night. So eventually she just went to the police and confessed. Let me, let me look it up. I don't know. I think at some point it mentioned that someone led the... The police to... The yeah, po- they, right. someone led the police to the thing. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was the woman. <laughs> I just don't really understand how people can get that vicious. Yeah. Even for, like, war and stuff, like, I understand, like, there is an end goal there, right? You're right. fighting for your country, you're fighting for land, whatever. Right? I don't necessarily agree with that, but it is, like, a popular reason that people do understand. Right? Right. For this, I mean, I don't understand what the point of that is. Why would you hurt someone and then torture them unless you're sadistic? Right? Yeah. And to have a room full of sadistic people, like, I feel like that's not that common. Right. She... The reason is... Beyond stupid. It mentioned at the beginning that she stole money from Chan, Chan, whatever, uh, and 
for that, he was like, let me round up some buddies and one of his girlfriends. And, uh, let's torture this woman. It's so dumb. Yeah, I agree. Well, I'm glad they found the killers, at least. Yeah, it's it's a really sad case, honestly. Honestly, that Hello Kitty doll would fucking haunt my dreams, too, knowing what we did. Yeah, have you seen pictures of it? Of the doll? Yeah. No, if you have any, send them my way, though. Yeah, hold on, let me, let me pull one up right now. Hold on. How big was the doll? Oof. It was, it was fairly big. That was the doll. They used... Oh, what the fuck? And it's a mermaid doll. Yep. That's disgusting. Actually, this is one of the places that they uh, torture her in. In the bathtub? In the bathtub, yeah. Yeah, if you guys want to check out these pictures, you guys can follow us on Instagram, at Creep Cottage. Um, but we will have... Disclaimer. And yeah, disclaimers ones. before anything yeah. uh, you click on. So, hope yeah. that helps. For my last story, we were talking about the elevator game. Is this the Cecil Hotel? Yes, this is the story of Eliza Lamb. Many of you may have already heard this. This was a very, very popular crime when it happened, and it is still a cold case. But this contains no gore or anything like that. It's just a... Mystery. It is mostly a mystery, yes. So a true crime story shrouded in mystery still haunts those who know the tale. 21-year-old Canadian student Eliza Lamb went missing in 2013 at the Cecil Hotel in downtown Los Angeles. This crime is still unsolved with many confusing pieces still yet to be put together. A viral video of the victim may bring us the most concrete evidence of what may have happened, but also the most confusing elements as well. Before her disappearance, elevator footage from the hotel caught her behaving strangely. LA police released the footage in hopes of finding information on the case, but to no avail. In the video, she seemed to be talking to someone through the elevator doors, but nobody was visible. She then rode the elevator for multiple floors, acting odd, moving in strange ways, and jumping in and out of the elevator. 19 days after she went missing that night, her body was found on the roof of the hotel inside of a water tank. Many claim that the footage is evidence of supernatural activity. Others find this claim to be disrespectful to Eliza Lamb and what they think the truth is. It is believed that she was playing a horror game involving elevators and tempting an evil spirit by going floor by floor and following certain rules of the game to get a glimpse of a real monster or demon. Known as the Elevator Game, a Bloody Mary variant from Korea, entails using a building with 10 floors minimum and pressing the buttons in a specific order to enter a new dimension. The rules also state that you must play alone and have no passerbys ruin the, the sequential order of the buttons. The story goes that by the fifth floor, you may encounter a strange woman who you cannot speak to or look at because she is not human and could take you away. If you get back inside and reach the tenth floor, then that means you have entered a new dimension. It will look the same, but empty, and the electronics won't work. To exit this dimension, you must redo everything from start to finish. If you get off at the wrong time, then you may never see reality again. Many theorists speculate that she invited some evil entity to come in and kill her. On the more rational side of things, we have no leads as to who or what may have caused her disappearance or death. It wasn't until further along that hotel guests began to complain of the water pressure and gross water spewing from their showers and faucets. A worker went up to the roof and climbed a, f a 10 foot ladder to find Eliza Lamb inside the water tank. 
Um, those are really just the basics of the case. Um, and because there's just not a lot of information on it, that's what we have. If you guys want to learn more, though, I do know that Netflix has a series called The Vanishing at the Cecil Hotel, which is a documentary created about this case. Um, so if you guys are interested and want to know more about it, you guys can check it out on Netflix there. Wow. I know that uh, Eliza was taking medication and she went off of it for a little bit, so people thought she was just nuts. That maybe she, she was just not caught up with her meds. Yeah. Which is, like, definitely a possibility, but... I don't know. It's it's a freaky story. It is a very strange story with little to no probable explanation. Yep. So that was my last story on Eliza Lamb. Alright. So this is my last story, and it's a bit longer. The Concrete Encased High School Girl Murder Case. Trigger warnings for this story are rape, abuse, and just general, general graphic content. Junko Furuta was a Japanese high school student who was abducted, raped, tortured, and then subsequently murdered. Her body was discovered in a concrete drum. So they put her body in an oil drum and they filled it with cement. The abuse was mainly perpetrated by the four male teenagers. Hiroshi Miyano, Joe Ogura, Shinji Minato, and Yasushi Watanabe over a period of 40 days from November 25th, 1988 to January 4th, 1989. The crime has been described as the worst case of juvenile delinquency in post-war Japan. On that fateful day, Miyano and Minato wandered around Misato with the intention of robbing and raping local women. At 8.30pm, they spotted Furuta riding her bike home after she had finished a shift at her job. Under Miyano's orders, Minato kicked Furuta off her bike and fled the scene. Miyano, under the pretense of witnessing the attack by coincidence, approached Furuta and offered to walk her home safely. He went and raped her in a warehouse, and again in a nearby hotel, threatening to kill her. From the hotel, Miyano called Minato and his other friends, Joe Ogura and Yasushi, Wanatabe, uh, and Yasushi Watanabe, and bragged to them about the rape. This group of boys had a history of gang rape. They raped another woman, but let her go. They had learned her home address from a notebook in her backpack and told her they knew where she lived and that Yakuza members would kill her family if she attempted to escape. The four boys overpowered her, took her to a house in the Ayase district of Adachi, and gang-raped her again. The house was owned by Minato's parents and became their regular gang hangout. On November 27th, Furuta's parents called the police. Her captors made her call her mom three times to convince her that she had run away but was safe and staying with some friends. They made her stop the police investigation as well. She was forced to act as Minato's girlfriend each time his parents were around. They dropped this pretense to when it became clear that Minato's parents would not report them to the police. Minato's parents later claimed they did not intervene because they were afraid as their own son was increasingly violent toward them. On the night of November 28th, Miyano invited two other boys, Tetsuo Nakumura 
and Koichi Ihara. Futura was only wearing a large t-shirt and skirt that Minato stole a few days earlier. The boys drank cough medicine, pretending it was drugs, and acted high. Furuta tried to run away, screaming in fear. Miyano grabbed her legs and, he and Ihara put a pillow over her face. The parents were awakened and went to check on the scream, to which Minato told them it was nothing. The group then proceeded to gang rape Furuta. During this time, she was in a state of unconsciousness, staring at the ceiling without blinking. The group held Furuta captive in the Minato residence for 40 days, where they repeatedly beat, raped, and tortured her. They also invited other men and teenage boys home and encouraged them to take turns raping her. According to the group's statements, the four shaved her pubic hair, forced her to dance to music while naked and masturbate in front of them, and left her on the balcony in the middle of the night with little clothing. They inserted objects into her vagina and anus, including a lit match, a metal rod, and a bottle, and force-fed her with large amounts of alcohol, milk, and water. She was also forced to smoke multiple cigarettes at once and inhale paint thinner. In one incident, Miyano repeatedly burned Furuta's legs, Furuta's legs and arms with lighter fluid. By the end of December, Furuta was severely malnourished after being fed only small amounts of food and eventually only milk. Due to her severe injuries and infected burns, she became unable to go to the downstairs toilet and became confined to the floor of Minato's room in a state of extreme weakness. Her face was so swollen that it was difficult to make out her features. Her body was so severely crippled, giving off a rotting smell that caused the four boys to lose sexual interest in her. As a result, the boys kidnapped and gang-raped a 19-year-old woman who, like Furuta, was on her way home from work. On January 4th, 1989, after losing a game of mahjong against another person the night before, Miyano decided to take his anger out on Furuta by pouring lighter fluid on her body and setting her on fire. Furuta allegedly made attempts to put out the fire, but gradually became unresponsive. They continued to punch her, ignite a candle and drip hot wax on her face, placed two short candles on her eyelids, and forced her to drink her own urine. After she was kicked, she fell onto a stereo unit and collapsed into a fit of convulsions. Since she was bleeding profusely, and pus was emerging from her infected burns, the four boys covered their hands in plastic bags. They continued to beat her and dropped an iron exercise ball onto her stomach several times. The attack reportedly lasted two hours. Furuta eventually succumbed to her wounds and died. The group wrapped her body in blankets and shoved her into a travel bag. They then put her body in a 55-gallon drum and filled it with wet concrete. Around 8 p.m., they loaded it and eventually disposed of the drum in a cement truck in Koto, Tokyo. During her captivity, Furuta had mentioned to her captors several times that she regretted uh, she regretted not being able to watch the final episode of Tonbo, or Dragonfly. Miyano found the videotape of the episode and placed it in the travel bag. As he later explained, it was not because he pitied Furuta, but because he did not want her to return as a ghost and haunt him. During the interrogation, Miyano believed that one of the officers was aware of his culpability? Is that a word? Was aware of his culpability in Furuta's murder. Thinking that Joe Ogura had confessed to the crimes against Furuta, 
Miyano told the police where to find Furuta's body. The police were initially puzzled by the confession, but they had been referring to the murder of a different woman and her seven-year-old son that had occurred nine days prior to Furuta's abduction, a case that still remains unsolved. The police found the drum containing Furuta's body the following day. She was identified via fingerprints. Ogura was arrested for a separate sexual assault and subsequently rearrested for Furuta's murder. The arrest of Watanabe, Minato, and Minato's brother followed. Several other accomplices who participated in abusing and raping Furuta were officially identified, including Tetsuo Nakamura and Koichi Ihara, who were charged with rape after their DNA, after their DNA was found on and inside the victim's body. All four defendants pled guilty to committing bodily injury that resulted in death rather than murder. In July 1990, a lower court sentenced Hiroshi Miyano, the leader of the crime, to 17 years in prison. He appealed to- Just 17 years? Oh, Jesus Christ, you fucking scared me! I'm sorry. Yeah, just 17 years. That's not enough time. Of course it's not. He appealed his <laughs> sentence- I'm, I'm wondering if I scared the audience too. I forgot you were there! What do you mean? <laughs> we're on a podcast! How do you forget you're on a podcast with your host? I don't know, shut up. <laughs> He appealed to sentence, but Tokyo High Court Judge Ryuji Yanase sentenced him to an additional three years in prison. The 20-year sentence is the second longest sentence given in Japan before life imprisonment. In 2018, Minato was arrested again for attempted murder after beating a 32-year-old man with a metal rod and slashing his throat with a knife. Of course, the others got arrested and got time as well. That's so stupid. I wanted to say some funny stuff and like make this a little bit more lighthearted, but there's nothing to really say to that that's going to make it different. Yeah. It just sucks. It's just awful. It's seriously such a fucked up case. She was just a victim of opportunity for these monsters, really. She was just on her way home from work. All of a sudden her life changed. Forever. Forever. Yeah. Till death. I can't even imagine being subjected to the horrors that those kids came up with. Like, that's so fun, like, dripping hot wax and, you know, the gang rapes on repeat over and over again. What I really, just... what really made me, like, yeah, was the fact that they repeatedly dropped an iron ball on her stomach while she was supposedly still alive. Well, she wasn't... Was she still on fire? Cause no, they... she wasn't still on fire. Oh, okay. But she was very burned. Regardless, yeah. Regardless. <sighs> okay. Well, we wanted to make this episode a heavy hitter, set the tone for what the rest of this series is going to be like. If any of this even once disagreed with you, please, please just wait till phase three. Yeah. This is hard stuff for us to talk about, and we want to make sure that everyone is in a comfortable, safe zone for this. Even, sorry, even as a true crime fanatic, some of the stuff that I talked about made me want to, like, throw something, throw up something. Yeah, it's, I agree, like, I, I like true crime and, like, listening to stories of true crime, especially the pieces of how they found the culprit and things like that. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't make this any easier to listen to or tell. So thank you guys for sticking to the end if you could make it here. We love you guys so much. Uh, 
a phase yeah. has already been really fun and really dramatic for our lives in a drastic change in how our relationship is and how things are getting along. Yeah. Um, and we hope that we can do the same for you guys. We hope that this podcast can be a place for you guys to come and listen to these horror stories that is somewhere safe and, and intimate with us. Something authentic. Um, but that is the end of today's episode. We're going to leave it there for today. Again, if you guys are listening on our website, you guys can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Amazon Music. If you guys want to message us with... Uh, comments concerns corrections stories you want us to check out submissions you can dm us on instagram at creep cottage or you can email us at twistedmanner.sub sub at gmail.com i hope you guys enjoyed the new phase i really don't know how to end this without just yeah feeling like shit but yeah if you guys found any of these stories interesting i hope you guys stick around for our next episode where we will have more for you yep. um these true crime cases they hit hard but the truth is out there and we we want to spread the word on these crimes spread awareness to be safe to be on your guard with people that you trust and yeah just be as safe as you guys possibly can this has been oliver and this has been kit we love you guys thanks for listening peace out bye dimension dark productions Ghost dog. <laughs> <laughs>